This morning we're uh, back in Galatians. If you have a Bible, pull it out. Uh, We're going to be in this very interesting passage this morning in Galatians. Uh, A passage, I don't know, you know, when the last time was that you had just a major falling out with somebody, just a huge old conflict. Maybe he was on the way to church this morning, I don't know. You know, you just have a big, a big Barney with somebody and uh, it's not much fun to think about. But this is basically the situation that we've got in Galatians. This is actually, I would say, one of the most intense conflict situations in the whole Bible. So intense that several church leaders, church fathers in the first couple of centuries actually believed this never happened, even though it's right here. They just felt that this was too intense. Too, you know, you've got two pillars of the church here, Peter and Paul, just head to head. Uh, some, some of these guys believe that this, can't, this could not possibly have happened and uh, they must have been staging it. They must have been just role-playing or something. Uh, but there's no indication here that that's the case. What you have is a real live conflict situation. So Galatians chapter 2 and uh, just a few verses this morning. We'll start in verse 11. When Cephas or Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So, And then Paul goes on then and explains a little bit more, but that's the end of what he says directly to Peter. So this is a pretty pretty highly charged kind of situation. You've got here Peter, the Apostle Peter, pillar of the early church. You've got Paul, the Apostle Paul, pillar of the early church. And these guys just going head to head, you know. I mean, we'd we'd like to think that the church was just a big happy family all the time. But here are two respected church leaders, each of whom have written books that are in the Bible. And they have this head to head conflict. It's pretty serious. Now, a little bit of background to help you understand what is going on here. The issue really revolves around some laws within Judaism to do with what you could and could not eat. These are quite unfamiliar to a lot of us today because we don't really think too much about what we eat. But if you were a Jew, and if you are a Jew today, uh, food laws or kosher laws are pretty important. Uh, Back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, there are a whole lot of laws to do with foods that were permitted and foods that were prohibited. Uh, The main food that's prohibited is the eating of pork, along with a whole lot of other four-legged animals. But pork was really the biggie. Uh, You couldn't have shellfish, uh, you know, shrimp. You couldn't have uh, fish that didn't have fins or scales. So so a whole lot of seafood was out. Couldn't eat uh, a lot of types of birds. Couldn't eat a lot of types of insects. Don't know why you'd want to anyway, but you couldn't eat them. Uh, You couldn't eat food with fat or blood in it. So no rare steaks. You know, you could not, this was just a huge deal. And there was a whole list of prohibitions. This was just part of life, is observing kosher food. And Peter, being a good Jew, he would have grown up just observing kosher. He would have eaten kosher food all the time without fail. 
And Peter is interesting because he's also, he also becomes a follower of Jesus. So here's Peter, the good Jew, eating kosher, but then he meets Jesus, who really begins to stretch his thinking on all of this. And there's a point after Jesus ascends to heaven when the Holy Spirit uh, reveals, or really the Spirit of Jesus, lowers down this vision, this vision of a big sheet to Peter with a whole lot of different types of foods on it. A whole lot of different types of foods that were actually prohibited to Jews. The exact types of foods that Peter couldn't eat. And that voice says to Peter, Peter, take and eat. Don't call anything now unclean that God has made clean or pure. And so Peter gets this message, a very profound message, that these foods that he had previously been really stuck on have now been made clean. There is no food that is unclean in a, in a, in a spiritual sense. This is a huge paradigm shift for Peter. I mean, we can't, you know, well, big deal. But for Peter, this was massive. This was a huge thing. Because the, the food laws not only identified Peter as a Jew, it was a real badge of Jewish nationalism. It was something that marked that people out from other people alongside circumcision and Sabbath laws and festivals and these kinds of things. This was a, this was a huge deal. But Peter has this vision and for a while then his shifting uh, changes and he's fine eating all kinds of foods. And at one point in time, Peter, this is where this passage comes in, Peter visits Paul in, Jerusalem, uh, in Antioch. Peter makes a trip to Paul and spends some time with him and for the first part of that trip, things are going fine. Peter is fine with the fact that here's a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, a church where there was no kosher laws in place because you've got Gentiles there, non-Jews. They weren't concerned about this stuff. So they're just having you know, pork chops. They're having spare ribs. They're having medium-rare steak. They're having shrimp cocktails. They're having all this stuff. It's not a big deal. They're eating it all. This is the nature of the church at Antioch. And here's Peter coming into this environment and for a while, this is okay. For a while, he manages it. Because in the back of his mind, he's got this vision of Jesus and the sheet of food and everything's been made clean and he knows, he knows, he knows. But at a certain point in time on this visit, there's a little delegation of people that come from Jerusalem up to Antioch and they take Peter aside and they say, Peter, we just need you to know something. What you are doing is causing a huge problem back home. What you're doing is causing a huge stir back in Jerusalem because it's getting around that you've, that you've kind of given up all your Jewishness. It's getting around that you really don't care too much about the boundary lines of the faith and the traditions of our ancestors. And you're compromising and you're blurring the lines and you're just becoming loose and you're going down the road of, of these, these open, free practices without the need for law. And Peter, this is dividing the church back in Jerusalem. A lot of the Jews, because it was a thoroughly Jewish church there, a lot of these Jews are getting really, really uncomfortable with the fact that you're up here not only eating with Gentiles. I mean, that's one thing we might just be able to handle that, but you're eating non-kosher food with Gentiles. This is a big deal. So we just want you to know. We just want you to be aware this is causing a problem back home. And so Peter's got to figure out how he deals with this situation. And what he decides to do is to pull away from table fellowship with Gentiles, non-Jews. He decides to stop eating with them. And remember, the real issue for Peter is not so much who he's eating with because it wasn't entirely prohibited for Peter to eat with Gentiles. The real issue is what is on the menu. Because when he's sitting at these tables, it's not kosher. It's not kosher food. So Peter opts to pull 
away. He opts to pull back. And physically, this would have meant he had to separate himself from the Jews eating around the table. He would have had to eat his dinner in a separate room, separate food, separate situation. And it's not just Peter, because he's such an influential guy, when he separates himself from table fellowship with Gentiles, all of the other Jews follow him. So now you have this church physically split when it comes to meal times. And church services, by the way, revolved around meals. This is something that we should get, get back, I think. I mean, they, they, every time they met, it was like they ate. They ate a lot. And uh, it was in homes, and this was good. And Peter now and all the Jews with him are eating separately. Another room, another menu, and the Gentiles are over here. Totally, physically separated church. And there's a stinging little comment here that Paul throws in. He says in verse 13, By their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas. I mean, this is Paul's co-pastor co-worker, colleague. Barnabas is the guy that recruited Paul to the church in Antioch. But now the pressure is so great and Peter's pulled away and all the Jews that even Barnabas succumbs to the peer pressure and he withdraws from table fellowship. So you've got the situation of a deeply, deeply divided community of people. And the situation is serious enough that Paul, and you might think, well, he was too harsh here, and you might feel like, you know, he should have just taken people, Peter aside privately and maybe, maybe he should have, but he doesn't. What he does is he just stands up in the, probably in the middle of a church meeting like this. And I mean, if you can, it's so, you know, you want to cringe listening to what he says, but he basically says to Peter, you are a Jew and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Because what Paul is saying is, Peter, you're a Jew, just like me. Paul was a Jew, Peter was a Jew. And yet you have learned that it is okay to, 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 to live like a Gentile. In other words, to eat whatever you want. It's been revealed to you, Peter, that this is not a problem. You can live like a Gentile. You don't have to observe kosher anymore. Why then do you force Gentiles, these non-Jews, to observe kosher? Of course, Peter probably wasn't physically forcing the Jews to observe kosher, but by his very withdrawal and his separation, that's the message that's implied, isn't it? That you are not really on the right team if you're sitting over there not eating kosher food, that me and the right team and the elite group are here. So even though he might not have said to anybody, you must eat what I'm eating, his very presence, separated and distinct from everyone else, spoke volumes that there was this inferior group out here eating whatever, and here's the real team. Here's the real Christians. This is the real family of God observing the real rules. And Paul just has a go at him, publicly and openly. And this is pretty serious stuff. Because the thing with these food laws is they really worked in Jewish culture like identity markers of this particular tribe called Judaism. It wasn't just rules God gave. It wasn't just regulations. It wasn't just the law. These were identity markers, circumcision, Sabbath rules, kosher food. They are like the, the boundary lines, the badges of identity that the Jewish people had that marked them out as a tribe, as a group, separate to and distinct from every other group. This is the same 
thing that goes on today. It's just a part of sociology. It's just a part of living in culture that we belong to all kinds of little groups and clusters and teams and movements and tribes. And we talked about some of this last week. And every one of these little tribes that we belong to has its own identity markers. May not be food laws. That was specific to Judaism. Still is. But you and I belong to all kinds of little groups. You may not be a formal member of them, but you belong to groups that have their own identity markers. Earlier this year, I, I was helping out running the, um, doing some work with the debating group at Birkenhead College. And it was interesting. I, haven't, I mean, I loved debating when I was back at school, but I haven't done any for years and years and going back into this whole environment. And I realized there's a whole language that I'd sort of forgotten about that goes along with this particular, you know, there's a culture around debating. You talk about, you know, third negatives and first affirmatives and moots and houses and POIs and all this stuff. And I had to get back in this world. All the competitions that go on, the trophies you can win, all the stuff. It's got its own little culture, and that's just a little debating group. You know, you may belong to a Zumba class. You know? Now, there's a whole culture in itself. It's got its own identity markers. <laughs> the way you move, you know? The way that it works. There's, you know, with some, of the, some groups that you belong to, there's a language, there's vocabulary that's specific to your little tribe. You may work in an industry with industry-specific language, technical language. And what that does, it's actually very culture-building because it creates a sense of tribe, creates a sense of team because you've got language and other people don't use it. It's not that you disparage other people, but it just builds group solidarity. Tribes and teams, they have stories. One of the first things that happened to me when I got my first job in a public relations agency was one of the directors of the company sat down with me and started telling me the stories of the company. Stories of how it was founded, the pioneers of the company, stories of great accounts that we'd won and excellent projects that we've done and the high points of the company corporate history. And this was culture-building stuff. This was induction. This was initiation. This was me becoming absorbed into a group and having my identity shaped as part of this corporate team. You know what I'm talking about. You have these groups. You have these teams. This would be true also of uh, religious groups and teams that exist. It would be true of cultures. I mean, it goes big, right? Cultures have their own identity markers. Language would be a huge one, but other things that define us, that distinguish us, different viewpoints, different issues within the church, within the Christian movement, all kinds of teams, all kinds of tribes, perspectives, viewpoints, theological, experiential, denominational. We belong to all types of little communities. You and I, you could name them, your family tribe. There's a sense of identity there with its own identity markers of shared symbols and stories and language and meanings that are generated for you and your family. We exist in a whole myriad of groups and we are entrenched within a whole raft of different communities. What Peter is is, among other things, a Jew, and he is expressing the identity of his Jewish tribe by sticking to and clinging to these particular boundary markers and identity markers of Judaism. Now, here's the question. What happens when the gospel enters a world made up of a plethora of different communities and groups and clusters and tribes, each with their own identity markers, each waving their own flags, each advocating their own views. What happens when the cross of Christ comes into such a world? This is the heart of what's going on in Galatians. How does the cross speak to this? And the message of this whole book is that now Jesus has come 
And Jesus has given us himself. And what we have just done as a church this morning is, in a sense, figuratively sat around a table of communion and acknowledged that Jesus has given us his body and his blood. He's given us the cross and the empty tomb. And these are now the only identity markers that matter. We now have one great big identity marker, and it's the cross of Christ. And Paul's going to go on to say it's our faith in Christ that defines us. It's the cross of Jesus Christ now that is the great identifier of the family of God that creates this, this, this big tribe for all of us who orientate our lives towards Jesus, for all of us who seek to follow him, however imperfectly, for all of us who bow the knee to Jesus as our Lord, the cross creates the tribe. The cross is the identity marker. And in view of that identity marker, in view of that badge, in view of that boundary line, all of our other little identity markers, they don't disappear, but they become lesser, and they become lower, and they become softer. And the one thing that the gospel will not tolerate, the one thing that Paul will not tolerate, and this is why he gets so fired up at Peter, is when the cross is overshadowed by our own little team boundary markers. And they get back in the way of the one true boundary marker that should transcend all of that. But we get so stuck in our own little ones, and what the cross speaks against is these boundary markers that we have, these little tribal ones, becoming fences. And we start drawing lines around little circles and little teams and little tribes. When boundary markers become fences, they start to shut others out. And they start to close down conversations and they start to create in-groups and out-groups that the gospel is cutting right across. One of the things that, that I'm learning as a parent is that when you get into the wonderful world of parenting, there are all kinds of different teams and tribes and views and perspectives. You know, everyone's got a view, don't they? Everyone's got something to tell you. And, there, you know, there's all these different little philosophies of how, from everything about how you, you, you get your child to sleep, you know, and how you discipline and how you do the routine. Everyone's got a view. And they kind of, you know, you can sort of divide them into different camps and different teams and different tribes. And then in a few years, and some of you are there, you, we're going to hit the schooling one, you know, and then you've got the homeschooling team and the state schooling team and the, and the Christian schooling team, you know. And there's no problem with all of these different identity markers and teams. But, you know, sometimes these can become fences, can't they? Sometimes they can become ways of us looking down our nose at a little, a little at someone that sits in the other team. And we kind of create our own little line and our own little group. And this can be a way of actually drawing a fence around people that keeps others out and keeps us in. When these things get to a point where others feel that they are lesser because they're not on our team, we're, we're, in, we're standing in Peter's shoes. We're in danger. We're in trouble. We're becoming Judaizers. That's actually what Paul accuses Peter of in the end. He says, you are acting like a Judaizer. When we hold our views, our perspectives, our identity markers in a way that it shuts others out, that it keeps others at a distance, we are becoming Judaizers. When we take what can be healthy differences... And we, and we send a subtle message to those on the other side of the fence that you are not quite in, that you're not quite up to it, that you're not quite, you don't quite have all the facts. 
You know, I mean, this goes on. Don't just think of Christian issues. You take something really contentious like global warming, for example, and there's Christians on both sides of that debate. You know, but when we kind of, and that's fine, you know, there are different views and different perspectives and there's a time and a place to talk about that stuff. But when it gets to the point where it's kind of like my view on an issue actually defines me more than the cross of Christ defines me. And and then I hold that view in such a way that it actually becomes a wall between me and other people. And we've crossed a line and we've become Judaizers. See, I don't think this means that we give up all of our convictions. Far from it. Because I think at its best, our tribes, our teams, they reflect the wonderful diversity of humanity. The fact that you have different viewpoints. The fact that you can have people sitting on different sides of a debate. The fact you can have people with different experiences and different perspectives. This is a good thing. The cross does not obliterate our identity markers and our teams and our tribes. It doesn't just flatten everything out as if there should be no difference between anyone and we should all think the same. That's not unity. That's uniformity. That's not what the gospel advocates. Not cookie-cutter Christians who all look exactly the same, all think exactly the same, all just come through on the assembly line. That's just boring. How does that reflect the nature of a diversely incredible God? God's three-in-one diverse. We should be diverse. That's fine. The problem is when our diversity becomes division. There must be a way within a church and within the tribe of Jesus to be diverse but not divided. It's a coalition. It's holding together a whole bunch of people with a whole lot of different viewpoints. And it can be done, I think, through the grace of Christ and through the cross of Christ. But it means that we have to use our identity markers in much softer and gentler ways and be prepared to reach across fences and work together. When I was in Jerusalem um, a few years ago, I went to a service on, at a church, beautiful church called the Church of All Nations on the edge of the Mount of Olives. And here's the scandal. It was a Catholic church. <laughs> and you know what I did? I, I was reflecting on this experience this week. I sat through the entire service looking for something I didn't agree with, L- waiting for someone to say something that I could jump on. And to be honest, if I'm looking for it, I can find it. You know, I mean, there, of course there were things there. But the spirit that I had walking into that, into that um, church service was just wrong. You know, that I'm look, I was looking to put up a wall. I was looking to use my Protestant identity markers as a fence and a wall and a boundary rather than something that, okay, I'm not giving up my convictions, but we are ultimately, you know, there's one church here and there's plenty of people within the Catholic Church who love and follow Jesus. And there was a warmth and a spirit in that service that honestly you don't even find in a lot of other churches. You know, but here I am with my kind of hardened heart, clutching onto my thing and and just wanting to put up fences and walls. That's the kind of spirit that the cross speaks against. That's the kind of spirit that Paul is countering. That's why he gets so worked up and fired up. Because what he wants to call us back to is acknowledging that even though we have all kinds of perspectives and we sit on all kinds of teams, ultimately we sit on one team, and it's the team of Jesus Christ. It's the family of God, the family that's built around the cross. And in that family, there's a whole lot of common ground if we're just prepared to look for it. At our very best, our little identity markers are ways of being enriched by each other. But at our worst, they're walls 
and our fences between each other. We've got to choose which way we're going to go. We don't know exactly how um, this situation in, in Antioch ended. Paul doesn't give us Peter's response. He doesn't tell us what Peter said, which, and some people take that to mean Peter didn't respond very well, otherwise Paul would have mentioned it. But what we do know is this. A little while after this happened in, in Antioch, Peter and Paul got together again in Jerusalem. They were together for a conference, big conference, with all these church uh, leaders and so on, a conference to settle this whole issue on Gentile believers and Jewish boundary markers. And in that meeting, Peter stands up and he says this. It's recorded in Acts 15. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between them and us, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Can you believe it's the same person? This is Peter. Look how far he's come. In I don't know how long, a few months maybe. But here's Peter suddenly around the other side of the table, which makes me think that maybe something Paul said got through to him. That eventually Peter got it. And maybe he, he, he slipped up again, but at least at this point, Peter knows it. He knows that there's one family, there's one table, there's one big tent, there's one temple with Jesus as the cornerstone. And we're all living stones built into that spiritual temple, all different stones with all kinds of different perspectives, but there's just one temple. And when we focus on the cornerstone of Jesus who unites us, some of these other differences start to look a little less serious. The walls start to come down, the fences start to come down, and we can start to be united. That's the message of the gospel. One team, one tribe built around Jesus. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for the tribe that you've created. I thank you for the family of God that we're a part of. And Father, you know that that we have all kinds of convictions on all kinds of issues and that we belong to various communities and clusters and groups and movements. Father, I I thank you. You don't ask us to give those things up. I thank you. You don't ask us to, to just be all exactly the same, but you ask us to focus on what unites us. And you ask us to allow our differences and our little team identity markers just to be totally eclipsed. And we want them to be totally eclipsed by the glory of the cross of Christ, by Jesus and Him alone, exalted and high and lifted up. We want that to be the great unifying principle of our lives. Focus us on that and not on the little things that divide us, I pray. Help us to work for unity, not only in the church, but across all kinds of divides, cultural divides, socioeconomic divides. Lord, whatever is out there, we pray the cross of Christ would have the power to unite people, that it would have the power to pull people together and bring people together from across all kinds of different impasses and walls and fences that have been built. Father, we're sorry for the times that we have drawn dividing lines where there shouldn't be any, for the times that we have tried to determine who's in and who's out without allowing you to do that through Jesus, for the times that we've failed to recognize just how many chairs there are around the table. Father, this morning, we may need to lay some of our identity markers down and at least make them much less important to us than they are. And we do that this morning, Father, humbly and gratefully.
We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We pray that he would be the one true definer of our faith and our team. In Jesus' name, amen.